This is your host, Grant Vermeer, Naval Academy Class of 2017, and I'm your Academy Insider. It's my goal to be your guide through the Naval Academy experience by sharing my stories and providing you inside information into the life of a midshipman. Academy Insider is in no way officially affiliated with the United States Naval Academy. All of the content on Academy Insider is my own and does not reflect the views of the United States Naval Academy, the United States Navy, nor the Department of Defense. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Academy Insider Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a friend of mine and honestly, one of the most impressive people you'll probably ever meet, Andrea Howard, who's a class of 15 graduate from the United States Naval Academy. In this episode, we discussed all about being a submarine officer, all the way from her decision of how she knew she wanted to become a submarine officer through her graduate education program to her time in Charleston through the the submarine nuclear training pipeline and then actually reporting to her submarine to talk about being an operational submarine officer. It's a super fun episode. We provide a ton of insight and factual information into the process of becoming and actually being a submarine junior officer. It's a super fun episode, and we'll even touch on the topic of being a female officer and a woman on a submarine. She provides a ton of great insight and perspective, and I think you all will really, really enjoy this episode. All right. Well, hey, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the Academy Insider Podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm such a big fan of you and the efforts that you've made to galvanize the alumni community and current midshipman community and the best community of all, the families. Absolutely. Thank you for that. But before we get started today talking about submarines, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as a midshipman, your company, your major, what you did at the academy? So a little background about you as a midshipman, but also a little background about you as a person and where you're from and how you got to the academy. Absolutely. So I was a midshipman in the great class of 2015, yeah, and a member of 319, which was a powerhouse color company, I must say, in my second half my time at the academy. Mm -hmm. While there, I double majored in Arabic and political science. And I'm from a town right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, called Norcross. I left straight from high school to pursue the holistic leadership model that the academy promoted and to get a little bit of that non-traditional college experience. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you find out about the academy? How did you know it was even a thing? I found out via two of my brother's friends who got recruited to do Naval Academy Swimming. And I pursued the Naval Academy Summer Seminar experience, got incredibly intimidated after that, but (laughs) continued to have this feeling in the back of my mind that that was the place that I needed to go and the challenge that I needed to accept. And I'm so glad that I went there in the end. Absolutely. And as uh, as a political science and Arabic major, double major, that is not necessarily the, I would say, the common major choices for people who end up becoming submariners. So how did you get interested in submarining? How did you know that you wanted to be a submariner? And kind of what influenced you to choose submarines as your service selection? So I agree. I was definitely a late bloomer when it came to <laughs> service selection. I applied for the academy intending to do uh, aeronautical engineering and to become an aviator. And obviously, I did the opposite of that. I did a humanities major and went underneath the water instead of up into the sky. And Admiral Richardson, who was the Little Raptors head honcho at the time, strongly questioned me as to the merits of me being a submariner. And the answer and justification I gave him, the same thing that I'll give to you, is that I wanted to work with some of the indisputably hardest working 
and smartest sailors in the Navy. And so even though it is a highly technical field and you're working with some of the most complex machinery and vessels on the planet, ultimately the, the process by which you learn nuclear power and the process by which you run a submarine is social at heart. And I knew that I would bust my own butt to work with these incredible sailors. And apparently that was good enough for the Admiral. <laughs> and it's worked for me so far. Uh, that's awesome. And did you were you one of the people who early selected submarines or did you select in your first year? I did early select. At the time that I was applying, the female midshipmen still were required to early select. Okay. Spring. And I think a couple people may have been able to bleed over into the fall, but the majority of us were expected to apply in the spring. And especially being a humanities major where mm -hmm. my fate would have been even more or less secure in the fall, I was required to interview in the spring. Okay, good to know. And so again, kind of, we talked about obviously where the Admiral tells you you should seriously consider summer reading, you know, that, that's a big one. But were there any uh, like summer trainings or things like did your time on ProTrimid going mm -hmm. on a submarine, did those things influence you too to kind of let you know, hey, maybe being on a submarine will be all right? Yes, they did. ProTrimid was the solidifying experience for me. And it was less about the time that I actually spent on a submarine. I rode the Louisiana for 48 hours. So that yeah. really wasn't a sufficient time to be like, this is the, the path for me for the next <laughs> five years or so. Yeah. But what really was the turning point for me was the, the way that submariners talked about their community versus some of the other communities. So mm -hmm. I know in going through the various weeks of ProTrimid, some of the other officers focused on the amount of time they had off from work and the ability to lateral transfer <laughs> from one community to the other, or just how cool it was to do their job, but the funding and time allotted to do that job were a little bit tenuous at the time that I was going through ProTrimid, which was right in the heart of sequestration in 2013. And then, in direct contrast, there were the submariners who had a really raw honesty about the difficulties of being in this community, but how fulfilling it was to do that job. Yeah, I'm the type of person, for better or for worse, that gets attracted to the hardest thing. And um, <laughs> I knew at that point that I wanted to just prove that I had the grit to be a submariner. Sweet. That's really cool. And super awesome. So... I mean, being on a submarine for a long period of time is not easy. Did it ever cross your mind like, hmm, how am I going to be able to spend 90 days underwater completely out of communication with everyone else? And how did you wrap that aspect around in your mind? I'm going to turn it back to you and <laughs> flip it because I think it is the exact same flavor of question as how could you possibly go to the academy? How could you possibly do plebe summer? <laughs> And the straightforward answer is that everybody around you is doing it and that mm -hmm. you are standing on the shoulders of giants who've gone before you. And if they yeah. can pave the way in much more difficult circumstances than you are experiencing, then who am I to, to complain about not being able to make it? And the reality is that the submarine culture too is just so close knit and has mm -hmm. such great camaraderie that I knew I, I personally would be able to handle it because I'd be surrounded by some of these fabulous sailors and officers that I previously mentioned. Absolutely. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at the Academy, for those of you who don't know, we have company officers and we have senior enlisted leaders, people who kind of lead you as your time during a midshipman. Did you have anyone, either a senior enlisted leader or an officer, or maybe someone who's a teacher or on the staff 
that was a mentor for you in regards to wanting to become a submariner and kind of lead you and talk to you about that whole process? Yeah, I really didn't actually encounter a ton of submariners while I was on the yard, being that I was a humanities major and mm-hmm. a lot of these submarine instructors were doing more technical coursework. But I did have yeah. a really great thermodynamics teacher who was a senior submariner on the yard, and he was the quintessential quirky, fun submariner. So just sensing his vibes, I could tell that he was somebody I could definitely work with in a professional capacity. And then I was really fortunate. My instructor for the JO practicum course was a phenomenal guy and actually just messaged me this week too. We were catching up, but he's an engineer now out of, I believe, Groton, but a wonderful guy. And again, just somebody who is very straightforward, professional, obviously intelligent. And so interacting with those people just reinforced the impression that I had from ProChimit and made me more willing and eager to be a submariner. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned that he was your practicum teacher in your second mm-hmm. semester, your first year. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what the practicum class is and then what you guys specifically learned in the submarine practicum course? So the practicum course is designed to expose second semester firsties to second semester seniors to a little bit of the culture that they're about to enter, as well as to give them a leg up on some of the other commissioning sources in regards to what course material you might see at your flavor of basic officer course. So for the submarine version of that, there's not a whole lot of unclassified material that you can cover, (laughs) but we did go over the watch structure of certain conditions of the submarine. We Mm -hmm. talked about how submarines are assigned waters and how they transit from place to place. And the biggest takeaway though that I had was the, the culture piece. And by that, I mean, we, we started delving into some of the history of submarines and specifically talk about the eight Medal of Honor winners that are in the community. And that was what really resounded with me is that the pride that I had started to get a sense of and, and really started to take shape at that early phase for me. Absolutely. And then, so you finish your practicum course, you're getting ready to graduate. And now you didn't take a normal path right after graduation. Can you tell everyone a little bit about kind of what your path was right after you graduated? I was really fortunate. I got to partake in the immediate graduate education program. And I know the rules are always shifting and changing, but at the time that I was a midshipman, they allowed approximately 20 of us to pursue two years of graduate education after we commissioned. So for me, I was a winner of what's called the Marshall Scholarship, and it's a nationwide scholarship that is funded by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office of the United Kingdom, which is their equivalent of the State Department. And under that, I was able to select two different universities to attend in the UK for one year each and attain two different masters. So I did an MSc in Global Governance and Diplomacy at the University of Oxford, And then I also completed an an MA in Science and Security from King's College London. Mm. And two major takeaways that I have from that experience was the privilege, really, of taking a strategic viewpoint at the role of America's military in the world before entering in at the tactical level and getting a little bit of tunnel vision as a junior officer. Yeah. And having the the honor of... a small fashion, but nonetheless a real fashion, diplomatically representing the United States Navy to foreign military, foreign civil servants, foreign future government officials, and 
breaking bread with them and critically thinking with them about some of the world's most existential issues. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you actually go to get accepted to be a part of that iJet program? Kind of what's the process? When did you begin to apply? Um, and what do you like need to, what are the criteria you have to meet in order to be allowed to kind of have that immediate graduate education program be allowed for you? At the time that I was a midshipman, they almost came and found you. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of, I want to say pre-year, some of the professors who run this UKISP program, and that stands for United Kingdom International Scholars Program, select approximately 80 midshipmen who are academically excelling in their class and put them into small group seminars for their youngster year over the course of which we start talking about various philosophical sources and current affairs, read books together. And this this takes place during the lunch period, either once or twice a week. And at the end of that year, the group is further broken down into approximately 20 students who they then endorse to apply for these different scholarship programs, both domestically and internationally. And for me, that was one of the unexpected joys of being a midshipman. I never anticipated that I would would be considered for any of these types of scholarships. And to have the individual attention and individualized support given to me to apply for this and to do some really deep self-reflection at the point that I was in my young 20s was really one of the most powerful things of being a midshipman for me. And I think that is one of the most unique aspects that we have as an academic institution is the ability of a program like that to pick out students and to develop them so strongly over the course of a couple of years. Yeah. And that, uh, all right. If it wasn't, if it wasn't obvious already by your answers to how impressive you are, I mean, that's like way cool, but all right. So you get two master's degrees, you finish up your school in there and then you get congratulated with even more schooling. So can you now talk us into what is next after finishing your IJEP time? Yeah, I brought it on myself. I'm 27 and I'm still in school. Still learning. <laughs> Continuous learning since kindergarten. Yes, the best way to characterize the nuclear power pipeline is by a quote that is on a little placard right before you exit the nuclear prototype command in Charleston. And it says, in this school, the smartest work as hard as those that struggle to pass. <laughs> and I'd walk by that every day and feel a little bit salty because it is a, as about as true of a statement as you can have about the nuclear pipeline. Mm-hmm. So when I returned, I engaged in what was to be approximately a year and a half of training before even reporting to my submarine. So the nominal breakdown is that students complete six months of coursework in the classroom at the Nuclear Power Training Command in Charleston. Then they divvy us up into smaller groups, and we complete six months of training at the nuclear prototype commands, one being up in Boston Spa, New York, and the other remaining in Charleston. I was in the group that remained in Charleston. And then after that, most students, as long as there is no backup in the pipeline, at the very end of their time, will go to what's called the Submarine Officer Basic Course in Groton, Connecticut, and that lasts about two months and exposes us to the fundamentals of ship handling for submarines and contact management. And how do they decide who goes to New York and who stays in Charleston for prototype? Is that just a random decision? Do you have any input or preference that you can select for that? 
or is it just kind of randomly like you're going there and you're going there? The command tried to take into account preferences and especially if they were pressing needs of people, be it family considerations or any sort of emergency or special circumstance. But for, and for the most part, I think people got the selections that they desired, but there were a small handful of people that, at least in my particular year, that were forced up to New York. But I've heard it go the other way as well. Sometimes there's an oversurge of people who want to go to New York and end up having to stay in Charleston as well. But like I said, they tried to be pretty considerate about roommates. They did allow a few people to switch as well who were held to one place by the other, um, as long as the people had a similar technical score. So, and by that, I mean, if you had a similar grade point average in mm-hmm. the first command, then that could reflect that you guys are effectively interchangeable, at least in the eyes of the nuclear power program, yeah. which at that point is fairly numbers driven. <laughs> Absolutely. And so did you enjoy your time in Charleston or is it your life so consumed by school that you don't really have time to appreciate kind of being in Charleston? The time in Charleston, I would say, is a choose-your-own-adventure novel in the Mm -hmm. fact that it is pretty individualized to how well you can naturally pick up this material and then how much effort you also want to put into it to complement your own natural abilities. For me, it was a a kind of a steep learning curve trying to get back into the technical swing of things. So I probably spent more time than the average person – actually studying for these different training phases. But I really like Charleston too. It was mm-hmm. super nice for me to be close home to Atlanta, get to reconnect with people there. And then also just to explore a new city though too. And Charleston is incredibly charming. I was a, a big proponent of Folly Beach and lived over in West Ashley area and spent my weekends down running and swimming in Folly Beach. And uh yeah, I would definitely recommend that people spend as much time outside while they're there because it's just an absolutely beautiful place. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of, I would say a lot, probably the majority of your coursework is not unclassified. So how do you balance like not being able to bring your work home? Did you actually appreciate that aspect or was it like you wish you would have been able to study while like hanging out at night and kind of just getting ready to go to sleep? Yeah, I would say that Grad school actually gave me some bad habits that I had to break when I got to uh, <laughs> nuclear power school because I started living the the good life of studying mm-hmm. in bed and being in a comfy, cozy library, <laughs> and then you switch that to being in uniform and studying underneath fluorescent lights. Like hopefully you find a room that has a nice window. But it was definitely a kind of a culture shock to me because I was always, you know, at the academy, much more of a private study year. I loved, you know, listening to music and going to a quiet place. So having to study in communal spaces, not under my previously expected levels of comfort was mm-hmm. a bit of a culture shock. But like you said, the relative merits of that, though, is that when you leave that institution, you are completely free. And while I didn't appreciate that as much during the pipeline, now, actually being on the submarine, it is incredibly nice to have that work-life separation of going home and yeah. completely being able to disengage from whatever coursework it is that you're studying or technical material. So I actually really have grown to appreciate that aspect of it. And it's one of the the nicer parts, I think, of actually working in submarines. Absolutely. And so you mentioned that you're actually a submarine now, an officer on the USS Ohio, which is an SSGN. Can you just tell us... so? 
kind of when people select surface warfare while they're still a midshipman they have ship selection night and they find out what ship they're going to it's a little bit different for submarines can you talk to us a little bit about how you actually find out what submarine you're going to and at what point in the pipeline that happens yes i'll call it the mystery list so towards the, <laughs> the end of prototype we were required to send in a sheet of preferences to the detailer and a couple of months later, a hard copy list got posted with our assignments actually physically in prototype, which is a little bit frustrating because you don't have your phones with these. Yeah. You know, call mom and dad, call, call your partner, call, call your best friend and tell them where you're going. So you're kind of just stuck inside for the next like, hours, like all dropping. But making sure that your buddies here in the pipeline with you immediately get to see where they're headed to. Um, yeah. And for the female officers, the choices for now are still a little bit constrained. So there are Mm -hmm. certain ports that host fast attack platforms that we cannot serve on yet. And so a lot of it is just determined by needs of the Navy. So I I personally requested an operational boat that would be doing operations in the the Western Pacific theater. And I was Mm -hmm. really fortunate that my kind of underlying, maybe not necessarily specific, but my underlying desire to be on the West Coast and to do Pacific-oriented missions was met. So I was incredibly satisfied. And most of the people actually, at least for my particular year, were really happy. That's awesome. Sweet. And so can you talk also a little bit when we talk about you use the term fast tax, like fast boats or SSGNs. Can you talk to us a little bit about what an SSGN is and what their operational impact is? Yeah. So you were saying that you're like, hey, I wanted an operational boat. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be out here. So what's an SSGN? What's their mission kind of at a high level? What do our SSGNs do in the submarine fleet? Okay, so the breakdown of the three types of boats, just at a general yeah, level. Great. But there are fast attacks, which are the smallest boats. Only the newest versions of those, the Virginia class, are open to women right now. But mm-hmm. they do a lot of intel collection type missions. And that's kind of their, their niche that they fill. So the small boats, the fast attacks. The second group are the what are called boomers. They're ballistic missile submarines. And they specifically fill the role of nuclear deterrence. So they carry the nuclear tip missiles that in the event of some outbreak of nuclear war, they could respond in kind with a nuclear attack because they are secret and they are effectively invulnerable. And then the hybrid weird stepchild of that are the (laughs) SFGNs. So they are four converted ballistic missile submarines that are now guided missile submarines. So they have the benefit that they're as big and massive as these these huge SSBNs, and they actually are the same class of ship as the SSBNs. They are the Ohio class, but they are big enough for holding approximately 120 conventional tip tomahawks to fulfill a strike mission. And then they also have this really interesting component where we can do operations with special forces and actually carry approximately 60 Navy SEALs on board and covertly deploy them to different areas of the world. Yeah, that's like pretty cool. (laughs) Um, So how was that adjusting from going from a whole ton of school, roughly almost three and a half years from the time of your graduate school all the way through basically graduating the submarine training pipeline? Is that correct? Mm How did you go from that to then checking on board a submarine and being the brand new J.O. on a submarine. How was that transition and how was checking on board? I kind of cheated the process a little bit because 
I was really lucky in that two of the senior JOs on board were mm. my classmates from the academy, and I knew both nice. of them decently well at school. So I, I had, you know, this these predisposed people who were had already socially vetted me to the wardrobe. <laughs> that, that I was an okay gal. Yeah, she's, was, she's cool. She's cool. She's cool. cool. Yeah, exactly. So um, in that regard, I was really lucky, and it wasn't like I was this brand new person. I already had this these established connections, which again just speaks to the merit of the institution from which we graduated, and the fact that there's this mafia wherever you go, and you're always going to have that community of support. But I was still a new person to all of the enlisted sailors and chiefs. Mm-hmm. And so we started out and in the shipyard for the first approximately six and a half months that I was on board. And we were supposed to, to leave about a month after I arrived. And I kept getting extended by different technical complications we were having on board. At the time, the shipyard was not exactly the most fun place to be. Um, it's a lot of long hours and paperwork from the officer side to do work controls and ensure that the maintenance and repairs that are being completed on the ship are being completed in a satisfactory manner. But what that afforded me, though, is actually a, a really great opportunity to get a, a what I'll call a technical intimacy with the engine room, which mm-hmm. is where you kind of live as a new JO on board. And you are required to finish your engineering qualifications within your first six months on board. And I was able to do that in about five pretty easily without any massive periods of sprinting Mm -hmm. because we had so much time to explore (laughs) the engine room and to get familiar with some of the personnel who were doing these maintenance. So for me, the big tagline that I have in regards to learning and qualifying in a submarine is that it's a social approach to a highly technical topic because mm-hmm. we we get our qualifications via what's called checkouts and they're just oral interviews that you do with the technical experts on whatever piece of equipment or system that you are currently studying and so you spend a lot of time getting to know some of the savviest people on the crew via these checkouts and and so when you first show up it's pretty important that you prep for these checkouts accordingly because you want to make a good first impression but even if your your technical knowledge isn't super high, as with any community, the best tool that you have in your pocket is just to be genuinely enthusiastic about these systems that your sailors own and to mm-hmm. show that you want to to know as much about their their systems as possible because it, it gives them value and fulfillment to see your interest. Absolutely. And, and when you were going through that qual process and you're learning about the engineering spaces and doing all that... Were you also assigned a billet too, or was your job when you checked on the submarine, you just qualify, you learn the engineering plan, and you do all of that? So submarines have the specific requirement that their junior officers before going to their final nuclear interview in D.C., that these junior officers do a, a year of time as a division officer in engineering department. And so there's five billets for that. And when I showed up, because my wardroom is fairly junior, all five of those billets were filled. So I was still given a division. I was the sonar officer, which uh-huh. some people will tell you is a fake job. <laughs> <laughs> for me, that actually our sonar systems weren't actually working effectively. So I had some pretty uh, upfront exposure to writing casualty reports. Which I think you guys also have in, in or sorry, I think the surface yeah. community also has. And I got actually a really good kind of pre-education for writing message traffic that goes out to Big Navy. And then a couple months in, I switched and I became the reactor controls assistant. 
And that was just in time for us to start doing, bringing the reactor back to criticality for the first time in a couple of years. So there's a lot of paperwork to be done for that as well, because anytime that the reactor is started up, we have to ensure that all of the reactor protection systems and affiliated systems that support the protection systems are all working properly. And so that was kind of a tough, a tough thing to get the division back into. And then while we were underway this past month transiting to Pearl Harbor, I got switched over to become the damage control assistant, which is a really broad hat for all the auxiliary systems on board Mm -hmm. to include the diesel engine and the high pressure air systems, hydraulic systems. So that's been already a pretty big challenge and growing experience for me because it's definitely a more wholesome look at the boat and how all of the systems work and integrate together rather than just focusing on the reactor and reactor protection. Yeah. And so how was that experience and kind of what was your role as a division officer, both as the Sonaro and then the DCA? What's your role as the division officer and how was it building a relationship with the chief and the LPO of both those divisions? As is true for many of these communities, the chief is the technical expert. And so A big challenge, I think, for a lot of junior officers is that you have to really approach your chief with humility because the reality is that you know a lot less about whatever systems that that you are normally in charge of now. And then you have to build trust, though. And Mm -hmm. so for me, the the biggest thing that that I tried to do in working with my chief was to manage some of the personnel issues that we were having. And to take some of that burden off of the chief, but then Mm -hmm. to just build trust. And for the submarine community, a lot of what the division officers do is paperwork oriented. And so to be the the signatory and and a lot of the paperwork that was coming through me, I really established, especially for reactor division, establish a good working relationship where I, I let the chief know kind of what I would look at specifically in order to alleviate some of the the burdens that he was having. And so, and there were times that I would catch mistakes and there are times he would catch some of my mistakes too, but it was just really approaching the chief with humility, trying to learn as much about the systems as possible and ultimately building that trust and finding a good battle rhythm to orchestrate the, the machine that is running an engineering division on a submarine. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you made that switch from Sonaro to then the DCA, you also switched department heads at that point. You kind of went from WEF's department mm-hmm. to engineering department. Can you tell uh, the audience a little bit about the department, just overall organizational structure on a submarine and how that all breaks down? Yeah, submarines have a much smaller wardroom than um, some of our counterparts in the Navy. So we have approximately, it's about 10 to 12 junior officers who are running various divisions. And that requires a lot of the junior officers to also wear various division officer hats. So people very frequently hold multiple billets at a single time. And then on the submarine, there are three department heads. As you said, there's a weapons officer and an engineer. There's also a navigator. And then they report directly to the executive officer who is responsible for the training and discipline of the crew. And then the commanding officer is the mission-oriented liaison to the higher-ups and ensures that the overall safety of the ship and the completion of whatever mission that we are assigned. The Ohio is really unique, actually, in that we have one of the first female engineers on board. She was a class of 11 grad from the Naval Academy, and it's been really wonderful working with her because she has had a different experience in submarines and that she was the first person to help integrate the Georgia as well. And you can see some of, I would say, her 
her leadership style and sometimes her reservation based off the upbringing that she had. But she's mm-hmm. an, an incredible trailblazer and has definitely set the tones for it to be a more inclusive working environment for the junior enlisted females that we now have on board. And she's yeah. just a rock star. I love working for her. This is my pitch if she hears this to make me <laughs> an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. We'll, we'll make sure we'll make sure to tag. We'll get we'll get there the episode well. past door. Absolutely. <laughs> and and that is something I absolutely want to talk about a little bit more uh, as we move on in the episode. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about you mentioned that you were you kind of went out to sea a little bit ago. How was it going out to sea? How is that transition from being in the yards to being out to sea? And kind of what was your life like as a junior officer underway qualifying on a submarine? So as I mentioned, the yards were a pretty frustrating place for the crew because they were chomping at the bit to get to sea. And for some of the particular rates, they needed to go to sea to finish their qualifications. And so we kind of had what I would call a qualapalooza when we were underway. Um, <laughs> and the fact that so many of us were, were doing, you know, operational things on a critical reactor and, um, you know, actually standing watch up forward, doing contact management and standing off to the deck on the Ohio rather than some of the boats that other junior officers had, had ridden for qualifications. Um, and yeah, it was just a tremendous time because a lot of the enlisted crew got their, got their fish, their dolphin qualifications and became submarine qualified. But we did sea trials twice. Uh, the first time we had some complications, so I'd pull back in and do some repairs. But the second time was just phenomenal because, you know, you're doing things at test depth and at certain angles and speed that, even our captain who's been in for 26 years that he had never done before. So that was a, a, a really neat experience to be doing that. And then we ultimately transited to Pearl Harbor and um, which, you know, was a beautiful port to experience, but for qualifications underway to answer your main point, um, it's, it's a definitely a challenge because I would say there are three things that junior officers have to juggle and that's time management and then while being stressed for time, maintaining good rapport with the crew for qualifications, so not letting your personal stress bleed over into your interactions with the crew, still still maintaining a, a nice working relationship with them. And then the third piece is and also dealing with what our EXO has, has deemed the radical candor of the wardroom and getting pretty constant and honest feedback from your peers about your performance and ways that you doing better, especially for some of the people who fell a little bit behind in their qualifications during the shipyard period. So it's, it's juggling those three things and then understanding that the qualification process is a, is like you said, it's a two to three year long process and it's pretty easy to get burnout because you do engineering qualifications in the first six months you're on board, then you start moving up forward or in some cases can integrate at the same time. But you have to do basic officer qualifications which allow you to rig certain components for dive after we just to verify the integrity of some systems as we go to, to deeper depths. Um, you also are expected to qualify periscope operator, which sounds pretty simple, but we have pretty sophisticated periscope on board and there are very specific routines and litanies that you have to utilize when you're on the scope. Then we're also expected to qualify contact manager, both on the surface and submerged which, right, we're no, we don't drive with windows a lot of the time. And by that, I mean, we don't do that at all. So, um, <laughs> and, um, so being able to maintain with the systems that we have a 3D picture of, of 
what types of vessels are around the submarine. And then ultimately, your last qualification is officer of the deck, both on the surface and submerged. So being the person who's not only giving the conning commands for the ship, but to also understand that the orders and permissions that you're giving out don't conflict in that as people are doing certain evolutions and maintenance items on the boat, that the boat is still ultimately in a safe position. And that if there are any restrictions that you fully understand what those restrictions are and how to get out of those restrictions in the event of a casualty. Um, so it's a, it's a tough, long yeah. process. And there's a, it's a lot of hours of standing under instruction watches. And yep. So to balance that with, with you already standing watch to support, especially when you're a, a more junior junior officer, when you're standing, you know, eight hours of, of watches, engineer officer watch back aft, and then you're expected to come forward in your off watch time and do those under instructions, it becomes it becomes really difficult. And like I said, then you're balancing that time management piece with good relationship with the crew and a good relationship with the wardroom. Yeah, a- absolutely. And so, um, as a result of my job, I've kind of seen a lot of different um, communities in the Navy. Uh, but I'll tell you right now that no one has more pride in their warfare insignia uh, than an enlisted sailor with his or her fish mm-hmm. and an officer with their dolphins. And, and so, and I think it just speaks to how thorough and difficult that qualification process is and all the things that you guys have to go through. Uh, and so more power to you because that that's difficult. And, and what you guys do is is super awesome. So um, th- thank you for taking the time to explain that. Um and also, you mentioned uh, one of the final qualifications is being a service officer of the deck. Uh, do you mind talking a little bit about what being a service officer of the deck is? Because I thought I thought submarines were just underwater. You guys are just <laughs> only under the water. No? Yeah, I call that one the JO retention plan, the, your time on the surface as a junior officer. So submarines have to operate on the surface when they are pulling into port, um, when they're operating in specific conditions of shallower waters, and like I said, ultimately, when they're coming in to do a mooring or when they're going underway as well. And, and before they've reached whatever dive point is allotted to them to then go under the water. Being a surface officer of the deck is just an incredible experience. If you're standing at night, kind of a little bit further away from land, you get to just see the mass amounts of stars. And a lot of times there's bioluminescence in the water. It's lighting it up in fun colors around you. Um And you get to sharpen those rules of the road skills as you try to identify the weird lights that are off in the distance and make sure that there's sufficient maneuverability and time for your submarine to get out of the way of some of these vessels. In the daytime, it's also incredible. Um, And I I just had the fortune of pulling us into Pearl Harbor when we finished our transit from Bremerton, Washington, and to drive past some of the sites that, you know, mark the historic day of December 7th and to ultimately, you know, get the mooring lines thrown over was just a true pleasure. And my captain kind of tricked me at the end because it was the last thing I was waiting to do before I qualified surface officer deck. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, the, the ship is no longer underway. We get the lines thrown over for, for mooring us. And he says, Miss Howard report why you're not qualified surface officer deck. Before I, uh, <laughs> I needed to do this practical factor. I needed to do my mooring. And he's like, that's not the right answer. He's like, there's only one right answer to this question. I'm like, well, sir, I really, I really don't know. I still need to do a board for this. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I do a board in the next few days. And he goes, Ms. Howard, report who qualifies you, your watch stations on the submarine. I'm like, well, you do, sir. And he's like, no, I haven't qualified you yet. So Ms. Howard, report why you're not qualified surface off today. And I'm like, well, sir, you haven't qualified me. And he's like, 
this hour do you have the deck and the con? So I got spot qualified, which was really nice. And then our Commodore was actually riding us for his last underway. And so he gave me a coin on his way down and said, thanks for the ride in. Um, but that was, I mean, an yeah. incredibly special moment in such yeah. a significant place for our Navy. And so, yeah, being able to drive on the surface is an incredible experience. And, you know, having spent a little bit of time on the water growing up, it's definitely a challenge to drive a boat that's 560 feet long that operates on nuclear power and it's pretty slow on the surface and to get that thing to maneuver properly in, in the right place in port is a great challenge and a whole lot of fun. Uh, absolutely. That's a really cool story. Congratulations, by the way. Um, it, but my, my next question was going to be, what's the best part about being a submariner in the fleet? I feel like that's a pretty solid moment, uh, but would yeah. you have a different answer to um, kind of what the best part about being a submarine officer is kind of in, a, in an operational sense? I'll keep harping on the same point, but it is 100% yeah. the camaraderie and sa- the sailors themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just have such pride like you like you um, highlighted in their work and they have such a willingness to teach and to work with people who I feel like are smarter than me and and sometimes work harder than me to be in their presence and to learn lessons from them is just such a privilege and our community is so strong because of them. Absolutely. All right. I do want to take the time now to kind of talk about um, a, a subject that we brought up a little bit earlier. And, and that's the question I want to ask is, have you uh, faced any obstacles or have there been any challenges for you specific to you being a woman on board a submarine with uh, the, the integration of submarines kind of being still a relatively new thing? Um, I'm really happy to hear that your engineer on board uh, is a woman. I think that's awesome. And I'm really glad that she's been a great mentor for you and kind of trailblazing the way. Uh, but I do want to pass it over to you um, to see and, and just kind of talk about uh, some of the unique challenges or aspects there might be for being a female officer or female sailor on board. So personally, I wouldn't say that I've had any challenges, but there is a reality that there's some interactions that have a different spin to them because I'm a female officer. So by that, I mean that some of the conversations are a little bit tempered when I'm around some of the male sailors and you know, they kind of play this tiptoe game of, of learning what your boundaries are. But as um, one of the officers on the opposite crew wrote in a proceedings article, uh, Lieutenant Kotlikoff, she mentioned that you also then as a female officer have a really unique position where you can set the tone and standard of professionalism on board. And that's like a very unique role and easy role for us to fill just based off kind of the trepidation that people have around us to begin with. But it's, yeah. it's a really nice place to actually come from because it adds some variety to the interactions that the wardroom has with the crew. And you have an ability as a, as a female officer to step up and set that culture and set that tone. However, the, the bigger culture setters that I would give a lot of credit to are the junior enlisted sailors on board of the female variety. So we are the third boat, the Ohio, to uh, integrate these junior enlisted sailors, both in engineering and then also up forward. Up forward, though, as well, in some of the, the non, non-nuclear, correction, the non-nuclear rates, um, we brought over sailors from the surface community who are at the first class petty officer level who um, 
can bring some of their technical expertise from there as well and have been integrating that into the crew and can also serve as mentors for the more junior junior enlisted. Um, the nice thing is that the crew now has rotated mostly to personnel who went through qualifications with these female sailors. And because they've been together for so long and, and went through those trials together, there's this really great and strong cohesion and a higher level ultimately of professionalism because it has changed the conversations and the culture of what the sailors discuss just socially and then both on watch as well. And then what I've really enjoyed too is that I, I consider myself to be part of the lady mafia on board. And <laughs> the, but, but seriously, the, the, yeah. the female sailors, because we've, we've had some of these different experiences together, they feel really comfortable coming to female officers. And it's a unique window for me into the pulse of the heartbeat of the crew to have these sailors that are really trusting and, and talk to, to me about things that, they might not necessarily say to my male counterparts just based off of, of, of shared experiences. So overall, you know, there've been issues with the Florida and some of the other boats in regards to female integration. I think the Ohio is really setting the standard for what a successful integration can look like. And we're really fortunate that we have both hard charging female sailors, but then I also give a ton of credit to our male sailors who have really been been supporting them and their qualifications and making sure that they feel comfortable too. It's a two way street and it's a testament to the whole crew, not just to the ladies on board. Absolutely. And and thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being as high performing and hard charging as you are and continuing to set the standard. I mean, that hasn't changed since I've known you at the Academy. And so I really appreciate what you're doing and I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk about all this and share all these stories. But I do have a couple more questions for you before we get you out of here. And the first is that the real question that everyone wants to know about a submarine officer, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are you any good at cribbage? I am okay at cribbage. You know that? <laughs> That's the euphemism. I'm pretty bad at cribbage. But I never played cribbage prior to getting to a submarine. Uh -huh. But one day the captain did trap me before leaving the wardroom after meal and mm -hmm. told me that I had to play cribbage with him in the XO. And I think I got a stroke of beginner's luck because I did <laughs> the And I don't think we any reward out of that. So I'll have to do that once we report back to our, <laughs> our off-crew training period. But yeah. Uh, that's awesome. And then do you have any specific things you like to bring with you for underways that you have any snacks, candies, little items that you specifically like to bring with you on underways. Yeah. So you're only allowed to eat hard candies in the engine room. So hard candies galore is the way to go for underway. So I brought quite a number of Werther's and Jolly Ranchers, mm. which makes me yeah. sound like an old person, but <laughs> what I personally needed to get through. And then um, submarines have more relaxed uniform standards underway, which is another mm -hmm. great benefit of being part of the force. Um, you're allowed to wear sneakers and you can wear underweight t-shirts. So people have all sorts of crazy patterns and colors going on. A lot of the guys were wearing Hawaiian shirts as we got closer to Pearl Harbor. <laughs> yeah, so that was fun. But I personally rocked some purple Nikes and a purple nice. beanie. That was my my go-to because I was always cold on board as well. Oh, and, yeah. It's freezing. You know, it's freezing depending on where you are. Too. We headed north before heading, heading south too. So while we were in, up kind of near Alaska, I was... Super chilly. So I, I definitely bundled up underway and rocked my beanie. 
But we also got to wear ponytails underway, and the guys got to grow their underway beards. That's a, a submarine pastime. So you had some gnarly-looking facial hair going on for a lot of the guys. <laughs> yeah, some dirty, dirty, dirty mustaches, uh, dirty, dirty beards. Mustaches, <laughs> dirty beard. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I can't imagine the the dirty stash and Hawaiian shirt combo. Mm. That's not good. That's not it's good. Pretty, pretty glorious, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well. Thank you so much. And uh, so whenever I bring former midshipmen on the podcast, I do have a lightning round of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so are, are you ready for these? I'm ready for it. Fire away. All right, let's do it. Uh, first question is, what is your favorite spot on the yard? Triton Light, 100%. Mm. It's just yes. a nice secluded spot to get away, especially at the end of a run. Just have some downtime, sit out by the pretty water. Yeah, total fan. Absolutely. All right, second question. You know, submarine food is notoriously pretty decent yeah, amongst the yeah. fleet. So we're going to talk about food now. The second is, what's your favorite meal from King Hall? Definitely a buff chick aficionado, but nice. I'm going to date myself here. Pre-sequestration buff chicks. Pre-2013. W- what's the difference? It was better. It was higher quality, higher quality meat, crispier <laughs> food. So pre <laughs> Don't throw that at my face. I never got those. I, I, I was the first year. I knew nothing different. I, th- I thought they were pretty good. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, next question is, is who or what um, was the biggest influence to your leadership style uh, in the fleet that you can trace back to the Naval Academy? Yeah. So I might have a little bit of an unconventional answer for this one, but for me, it was actually my civilian professors. And so um, I'm just listing some of them off, like Stephen Roggi and Deb Wheeler from political science and Hezzy Broch from Arabic department, Ernie Tucker and John Limbert from the history department, because they were people who recognized kind of the, the grind that I was doing in their classes mm-hmm. and singled me out, supported me and really focused on my individual development and therefore facilitated my ability to go to graduate school. And had I not gone to the Naval Academy and had their direct support, I don't think that I would have ever pursued that opportunity. And so that notion of finding people who are working hard, giving them affirmation, supporting them in further development, that is something that has always stuck with me and that I will always try to pay forward to my sailors as they're doing the same for me. Who yeah. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. And it's also, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up because I don't think it's something I've really talked about on the show is that at the Naval Academy, there are both civilian and military professors. Uh, so you have permanent civilian staff, you have permanent military staff. We call them PMP is permanent military professors. And then you also have, uh, junior officers who are literally just like rotating on a three-year tour and come teach as well. So there's a large mixture of both civilian and military instructors, permanent and non-permanent. Uh, but that's really awesome that you had uh, civilian instructors that really made that big of an impact on you. That's super special. Um, all right. So I, I have to imagine, I don't know this for fact, that you're probably a pretty big reader with just how intelligent you are. I was wondering if you could share with us a couple of your uh, favorite books or just literally singularly your favorite book. Well, I've been I've been reading a lot of reactor manuals as of late. <laughs> it's uh, taking me away. but. Um, before my senior year, I reread Anthem by Ayn Rand, and that really was just an impactful read for me because it focuses on individual power and critical thinking. 
and how you can find that sense of individual worth from a community, right? The academy is, is so intensely focused on team building. And I think sometimes that can bleed over into a uniformity of thought. And so Anthem for me was just something that reaffirmed your ability to critically think within a structure that is as powerful as the military and to find yourself worth. Absolutely. All right. Uh, two questions left. <laughs> First, what is your greatest memory from your four years at the Naval Academy? So I didn't mention this yet on the show and it would, I'd be remiss not to, but I was <laughs> the D and D queen. My, hey. my year, as, I, as I call it, I was there <laughs> for Jum and Bugle Corps. Um, and I, I love D and I got to travel all over the place with them. We, we went to Ireland my youngster year for the Navy Notre Dame game. And we marched in parades like Mardi Gras and New Orleans and Gasparilla in Florida. We did Patriot's Day Parade every year in Boston. So I love that. But it was so, so special to be Corps Commander for the centennial year for DMV. Mm-hmm. I just loved doing football march-ons because we did a kind of special presentation at the very beginning of March-On that year. And I'm not sure if they've continued doing it. I don't, I don't think that they do. But um, that was just so special. And I just remember like my mom coming to – you know, football games and like crying in the crowd because she was just like so proud. I was like, your grandfather who was a World War II vet would have loved to have seen this. And, you know, that was just a really special recognition, I think, of like the hard work that I'd put in for that organization and to get to lead this group of people that I love so much and in a, in a special type performance highlighting the history as well of, of that organization was incredibly special and is something I'll always cherish. Absolutely. Way cool. Um, all right. Final question. What advice would you give someone? So a, lot, a large majority of our audience as well is prospective midshipmen, high school students that want to learn more uh, in their families. What advice would you give someone kind of who's a candidate or who's interested in the Naval Academy about what they should consider when trying to decide whether or not the Naval Academy is the place for them? I'll beat the same drum that I'm sure many before me have in that you, you must focus on the holistic picture of who you are as a person which means that good grades are not enough and being athletic is not enough. Um, kind of in the words of, of John Wooden, you know, sports don't build character, they reveal it. And, and everything that you do at your high school level should reflect that notion that the activities that you're doing should reflect a wholesome picture of your character. And that means that you're striving hard academically and that you are doing athletic things, but that you're also engaging in, in the community and giving back to the to the people that have supported you in your development, because it really does take a village. So think about who you are as a person and what narrative you can fill in regards to, yes, self-promoting to get a spot on the team that is the Naval Academy. But ultimately, you need to prove to the admissions officers, how are you uniquely suited to give back to the Navy and to make it a better and stronger institution? Absolutely. Well, here's the thing. I'm a huge fan of anyone who will quote John Wooden. <laughs> and Andrea, I am a huge fan of yours. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Academy Insider and share your stories and your experiences, insight, and information regarding the submarine community and your time at the Naval Academy. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. I'm a huge fan of yours as well. And keep fighting the good fight. Academy Insider is a great project. And I'm so proud of you for starting it and for bringing more people into this community that is the Naval Academy family. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And for everyone listening out there, uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to the episode and I hope you all have a great day. 
Thank you all for listening to the podcast, and I hope you're able to learn a little bit about the process of becoming and actually being a submarine junior officer. Please leave me a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe to the Academy Insider Podcast. If you want to learn more about the United States Naval Academy, make sure to go check out my webpage, www.academyinsider.com, where I have tons of content providing you an inside perspective into the midshipman experience. All links discussed in the show are listed in the show notes. So if you want to check out Anthem, Andrea's recommended book, make sure to check out the show notes and we'll provide a link to a copy of that. I'm Grant Vermeer, the Academy Insider. Thank you so much for letting me be your guide to the United States Naval Academy.